Hello? Not you again. When did you get back? Oh, I've been here all night. Let me speak to Mr. Christopher. She's still asleep. We were up pretty late playing games. is one that you recommended to me. The first one ever. The yes. first one ever in this. Well, not oh. ever, but for the podcast, yeah. 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 And also, um, I think the first time you ever uh, succumbed to one of my recommendations. Uh, no, actually, I just don't tell you when I do. Okay, well, that, that, that's... I wouldn't want you to have the, uh, that's both the smuggery. <laughs> gratifying and creepy in equal measures. It should be said that we might put this podcast out for Christmas because we've recorded it just after Christmas of 2020, uh, what a great year that was. Oh, and, it was a uh, crack, wasn't it? <laughs> and the, the point is, it's a Christmas movie. Yes. It's absolutely a Christmas movie. And it's very amusing because we both have our little notebooks where we jot down things while we're watching films and we have our notebooks with us for these discussions. And you were very uh, methodically going through your notebook and, and preparing, whereas I was smugly doing nothing because this is one of my favourite movies of all time. Yes. I watch it every Christmas. I love this movie. I know. I was so worried about what you'd think of it, but and me for loving it. But I love this movie, and I know it, I think, well enough to probably discuss it without any notes. What astonished me... Have we mentioned the name yet? The, the, fi the, the, film, the is, film is called Susan Slept Here, and if you've never heard of it, uh, I wouldn't be surprised, because I'd never heard of it. I must have seen it on telly one night. Yeah. It's, it's a 1954 comedy in colour, starring Dick Powell and Susan Reynolds, and I could not believe what I was Debbie seeing. I, yes, it's Susan Slept Here, so that's confusing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, I know this film so well, I don't need notes. <laughs> and is there a Susan Reynolds? Probably. She's one of the producers on Golden Girls, I think. I think it's somebody I know. Well, let's start again. Um, fuck. Fuck that. That's yeah, all good. Um, I saw this movie. I couldn't believe it. And I was so pleased when a DVD came out. And then uh, there's a, a legit DVD. And now there's a legit Blu-ray. So I lent Matt my legit DVD and I watched the Blu-ray for the first time this Christmas. And... Again, gorgeous colour photography. The guy who shot it, again, is a Greek name. We were having a bit of trouble with Greek names, weren't we? Uh, something like Mustarurica. But let me have a quick I'll look. let you say it. Well, it's worth saying, because the, the thing about this guy is he was a well-known uh, Hollywood cinematographer, but more crucially, and this is the bit that I love, is that he uh, he was famed for his film noir. And this is, this is the, his name is Nicholas Mussuraka. And he did a lot of black and white crime movies, but this is the absolute antithesis of these because it's gorgeous, crazy, unreal technicolor. Also, he has his work cut out because we're mainly dealing with one set in the whole film, for this the most is, part. This, this film is based on a stage play. Which is clear. And the stage play was by Steve Fisher and Alex Gottlieb, and the screenplay is by Alex Gottlieb. It's worth noting these names because it's a very witty script. It's a very good script, and right from the very beginning, there's that great line about the Oscars and Hollywood, where it says that every year around income tax time, we throw a large party. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, okay, well, this is odd. 
Um, yeah, so it took me by surprise that because the the poster, and the, the poster is one of the worst posters of all time. Yeah, it doesn't scream comedy to me. Uh, well, just it's kind of cre- it's like a creepy Salvador Dali esque uh, miscarriage of a poster. Having read the plot, or a, a precy of the plot, yeah. and seen that poster, I was expecting a much darker film than this. Oh, and it's, it's quite the opposite. <laughs> but it's. It's a brilliant fizzing comedy, I I would submit. <laughs> it, yeah, well, it's got great lines, well delivered. It's a really good cast. And and it, it, they and make the most of it. Great, great script. I've got the play and I've read it and it's very interesting. Is it similar? Yeah, it's it's about as similar as it could be. But you mentioned the Oscars. So what? one of the main things they changed from the play to the movie is uh, it's about a screenwriter and a teenage girl, basically. I think that's the essence yeah. of this. And the screenwriter... The way they turn it into a movie is they, they thought, okay, let's make this more cinematic and we're going to have this, and this is an insane idea, the movie's going to be narrated by the Oscar that the screenwriter won, the statuette. Hello, I'm Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to narrate the story. And it came to think, that's, that's kind of a film noir tradition, having a strange narrator. But this is, anyway, nothing to do with noir. So that all, all that business about uh, roundabout income tax time and, oh, brother, I wish I'd, I'd been won by this uh, supporting actress <laughs> and all that all this stuff, first-person stuff from <laughs> this statuette, all that kind of craziness uh, has been grafted onto the stage play, which, as you say, basically takes place inside the, impar- the apartment yeah. with much the same characters and some fantastic bits. Uh, just, can I leap ahead? There, there's, um So... Mark Christopher is the name of the screenwriter. He's played by Dick Powell. And he's wealthy. He's a successful screenwriter. He's got a maid. He's got a secretary. And he's also got an, a menuensis or a sidekick. Uh, this guy is asked... He's, and that is Alvy Moore playing Vir- Virgil. And Virgil... Uh, at one point, somebody asks him who, who he is and what he does. And he says, oh, I, I'm his... Uh, I'm something like... I'm the Watson to his homes... Uh, it's sort of his sidekick, and and, his, and his, oh, not like quite like a butler or a valet, but sort of a uh, sort of a companion, really. And that's a very interesting relationship. And there's a great bit in the play, which is not in the movie, where Virgil is not is supposed to not be there, and he's in the kitchen, uh, and the and the cops. There's two cops there, and our hero, and they they don't know that Virgil's next door in the kitchen, and that somebody said something about Virgil and girls. And uh, the cop says, oh, I always thought Virgil was a swish, right? And there's this sound of Virgil dropping something off stage. So, and that's here in a similar and not as funny form later on. Yeah. But it's just, it's brilliant. Because Virgil, uh, the relationship between uh, about Mark Christopher and Virgil is very interesting because he's almost like his manservant, right? It's sort of like a, it is very much like a Jeeves and Worcester sort of relationship. It is. There's... This is where there's a slight problem with the casting. Okay. In that Dick Powell is clearly way too old. He's for too this old film. for everything in this movie, not least for the ending up romantically entangled with this gorgeous teenager. It makes for very uncomfortable. It does. Viewing. But uh, weighed against that is the fact that Dick Powell is good at what he does and, and is quite charming. He's charming. Uh, he's fun, but he's thirty years too old. <laughs> yeah. And. The, the whole point of Virgil is that he was meant to be his former commanding well, officer. This is the big and gag. Virgil's about yeah. 12 years old. <laughs> I know. Virgil is now effectively his manservant, but the gag is, and it's a good gag, is that he used to be his commanding officer in the Navy. Yeah. So I hadn't... I, I'm still so... I have such a, a residue of being residue of being appalled at the age gap between Dick Powell and Debbie Reynolds 
that it hadn't even occurred to me that it's it's really completely surreal that Virgil could be his commanding officer. So Dick Powell is way too old for the part, but he's probably the reason the movie got made. Quite likely. Um, he's scripted as being 35. Right, and he's about 20 years older. He, he looks, he's 50. Uh, and he looks older still, because these are the days when people smoked. So he's got this wrinkled, wrinkled face, right? Well, you look older if you smoke, as the film tells you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's an abuse. We'll get we'll get to that in a minute. So, but I don't want people to feel that that is a barrier to the film working because it works well, anyway. The only way it's a barrier to the film working is if you watch it new now. I think if I'd have watched this thirty odd years ago, oh uh, yeah, it wouldn't have been so weird. Yeah, um, watching it now, it's just oh, here did we it, go again. Did it prevent you? What What do you mean? Okay, well, what do you mean? Here creates, we go again. Because Susan is no, uh, but, but, but what, what do you mean? Here we go again. Uh, There's a lot of this stuff. The older in the hollywood problem of the older actor and the oh, younger actress oh i see actress. you mean in the in the wake of me too uh, well it's not really me no. too but just generally speaking there's always been this thing of the lead actor like sean connery has always been twice the age of most of his female co-stars or love yeah. interests and yeah. it's just this hollywood thing it's always the older man very rarely an older actress with a younger in, in fairness man. this this movie took place about 20 years before those bond movies well, yeah, but I'm not. I'm just using that as an example of how Hollywood works with the older man and the younger girl. So you just which, you're saying that, that here we go again. Yeah. It, yeah fair it, enough. It's fair that comment. same. Did it stop you enjoying the film? No, but Thank it did God. make me read it differently because oh. he's been bought this Christmas present by. <laughs> Who's the a little film theorist then? Well, <laughs> Dick gonna... Powell has been bought uh, a Christmas present. Oh, well, let's essentially. Can, can we explain the setup in this film? Well, because yeah. it's a great setup. Uh, is that. So he's a screenwriter. Yeah. And most importantly, he's a blocked screenwriter. He's working... He writes light comedies and he wants to write a serious drama. And his secretary keeps typing up these pages and telling him how much they stink and then making herself a dry martini. It's a great kind of 50s relationship. So what will happen is she'll take the stuff out of his typewriter, go and pour a, a jug of martinis and virtual, and she will sit there <laughs> drinking the martinis. And poor Dick Powell is blocked. He's got writer's block. He's writing, but he's writing crap. What happens is a couple of cops turn up and these cops, uh, one of the cops knows uh, our screenwriting friend because he was, he was on a movie. He was an advisor on a movie. And that's when they met. And the gag is, by gag, I mean the setup premise for this film is that Dick Powell lets slip. The screenwriter lets slip. His name's Mark Christopher. But he wanted to do a story about teenage juvenile delinquency. And so... To help him in his research, and he said he wanted to meet somebody who, you know, one of these teenage juvenile delinquents. So this cop has brought him this teenage girl that they've arrested for him to do research on. And yeah, so take it from there, Matt. Well, not only that, they they go to some effort to point out that she's seventeen and yeah. that this is dodgy. And well, they, they say that she's his Christmas present because yeah, uh, there, there isn't a suggestion that she's being pimped out to him. The suggestion is here's the research that you always wanted to write that great script that you wanted to write. Is that a fair comment? Yes. Um, are you familiar with the saviour complex? No. This is something which is it's a fairly modern theory of middle-aged men who feel that they can be the saviours to young women who are making mistakes in their lives. Do Are these young women invariably attractive? Yes. <laughs> it's usually based never would have on guessed. a degree of attraction. And... This is your archetypal saviour complex film. and Can you cite any others? I'm not, I'm not being snarky, I'm just interested. 
Yeah, I probably can if you give me a minute. I yeah, really... uh, I've never heard of this complex, but it's great that we've got another complex for people to uh, yeah. <laughs> obsess about. But again, I don't think that that's a barrier to enjoying this film. No, it's not. Um, I'll come back to you on other things. That's going to be yeah. playing on my mind. It may possibly be no, in the please. next film we cover. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just bring it up in the blue. Um, but that was on my mind with this. And more so as things went on. Because he goes out of his way to try and to help her. save her. Yeah, it's not so much help her as save her, and it's it's quite icky because of the age gap, and it's very difficult I to get away from that. I don't think it's too icky because she doesn't really need saving. She kind of saves him, doesn't she? That's the whole point of a savior complex, though, is that they're helping people who are actually quite happy with the position they're in in life, and she's very happy with the lot she has in life. She's I, not I, looking to be saved. Yeah, but she she's she, been arrested she, against her will. Yeah, but also she she's in love with him. She's soon to be in eventually. Love with him. Yeah, but, but then we've got the writers. See, this is where you have to question the motive of the script because that's the writer's interpretation of that character. Well, this, that I wouldn't the savior complex thing, which I'd never heard of before, be mm. a barrier to, to, again to this film because uh, you're thinking this teenage girl, a very attractive teenage girl, like, and she's. Do you want to say a bit about Debbie Reynolds, who's amazing in Debbie this? Reynolds, well, this is the weird thing. is When we discussed this film before we watched it, I said, I've never seen a Debbie Reynolds film. And She's I'm sure so I must have done. But She's I've never so seen good. Singing in the Rain. Uh, I tried again this Christmas, couldn't This is a better it. movie, um, <laughs> I would argue. Why, this is the first time I've seen her in a film from beginning to end. And she is quite young in this. Yeah. And what I found quite creepy was from that very opening moment where you hear her scream. Yeah. I mean, she's had a proper drawn-out scream and then she comes screaming onto the set. Yeah. She runs around. She's fighting people. She's kicking people yeah. around. She was so much like Carrie Fisher. It was creepy. We see, I don't think she resembles her daughter It doesn't resemble much. her. Oh. It's the body language. How the, interesting. The mannerisms and especially the vocal pattern. The, 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 her the speech. Cadence. Yeah. There's something about her that I thought, oh, God, that's creepy. But um, creepy only because it's setting up a kind of echo with her daughter. But yeah, also because it's a very strong female character to begin with. In she, fact, all the with the, even Isabella, is it? The, the, I, uh, I want to step on that word creepy because it was creepy only for you because of your deep knowledge of her daughter's work, wouldn't you say? Spooky, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. creepy probably wasn't the word. I'm just yeah. saying that it was. It, it sends a bit of a shiver. You look at it and think, wow. If you, you know, know her daughter's yeah, work. Yeah, now you know. I don't want people to get, to get any impression other than that this is a comedian of genius. No, I mean she's she's out of her depth. Oh, I disagree. I would well, say. Okay. I, I think she struggles a bit in this film. I but thought she was brilliant at every turn, but okay, well we can talk about that along the way. Yeah, no, I mean, what about when she's pulling faces when she's watching the home movies? Yeah, she's great. Yeah, she has really good moments, but there are it's the high emotion bits that she struggles to and more the acting tone. than the comedy. Yeah, well, she, I did she's, say comedian of genius. Didn't yeah, I? she's uh, she's on kind of a one track tone for this one. Do, but do you think she ever fails when she's trying to be funny? No, she makes she does come across trying too hard at times. Oh, um, okay. The breakfast sequence would be one where she's making breakfast. I think. Oh, well, when she's fanning herself with the the uh, freezer door. Yeah, well, I loved that. What no, would happen? No, she's is... making the eggs. She's got the pan on. Then she's got the she's, toast. She's, she's got the toast under her chin. She's trying oh, yeah. to carry stuff around. Trying to do too much physical comedy. Yeah, I, I can I can see where you're coming from. But can I just say I'm really pleased that you didn't hate this film. <laughs> no, no, I don't. I don't hate the film. I'm just saying that it's a film of its time, and it can be interpreted yeah, very let's differently. Let's leave now, all that behind and look at what. A, gem of a comedy it is because it's a crazy it's, it's got fantastic look, look, lines and great yeah. performances so, so, and um and i i wish i could remember the name of the actress so, that plays so, his friend is it 
something Farrell. Um, the, Glenda the, Farrell, Glenda who plays Farrell. Maud Snodgrass's yeah. secretary. Yes, she is incredible. Well, Every not, line not she has is she. a bit of a zinger. Okay, she, she's this sort of um, spinster who desperately wants to get kissed under the mistletoe and she's not going to in this movie. But she ends up with her, her dream man, and we only see him for about 10 seconds, and he's great. Do you remember the guy? Yeah, it's like, just all, refra- all reactions. Yeah, and he's doing this fantastic physical comedy of trying to get a straw to work on a, on a nice drink, and he's wearing cowboy boots. It's just... Uh, th- there's. I think that this is full of wonderful comic performances. I don't think we said enough about Alvy Moore's Virgil, who was just great. But well, po- Actually, he was the one that I felt was trying... was not working. Okay. I thought he was trying too hard, and it... He overreacts well, rather than I, I everyone th- else is I reacting. I think all, all this it, about yeah. overacting and overdoing it, I think a lot of this can be laid at the door of Frank Tashlin, who directed it, who came from doing cartoons, animated cartoons. Yeah, I was fascinated by his career. He's uh, done Merry some, Melodies and Looney Tunes and things. He's uh, done which, some... All his films are worth looking at because they're visually brilliant comedies, but they, they might be have this problem of excess of... Um, Emphasis, which you seem to be bugged about, which I would understand. Well, he did um, some of Doris Day's later films. Yeah. Uh, they're not a bunch great of films. Jerry Lewis movies. Um, I, I would watch Priest, and I think he also did Glass Bottom Boat. I, I would watch any movie by Frank Tashlin just on the basis of this, which I think is a forgotten piece of comic genius. Yeah. This movie. I knew the name when it came up, and I had to look up where I knew it from, and it was from the Doris but Day his ones. His stuff has the most fantastic visual quality. I mean, they sort of look like cartoons. They're, they're garish colors. Well, this is especially true of the dream sequence. Yeah. Maybe we're leaping ahead of ourselves here, but that sequence is just insane. I thought you might um, like it. It it really rises the level of the film up because it's. I'm assuming it's the one thing that isn't in the stage play. How could it be? It's absolutely not. And I just, I, I think we're on a hiding to nothing to try to describe this dream sequence. But <laughs> well, it's we can. Fabulous. It's basically a real life Mary Melodies situation. It's, I never thought that, but it is. You've got Sylvester and Tweety. You know, she's in the cage. He's she's in a bird cage. Yeah. I, Oh, but it, you have to. But it's probably on on uh, YouTube. People should check it out. I'm astonished I've never seen this sequence because no, I should know it. No, but people have never heard of this movie, and I'm proselytizing for it. Uh, you're talking Why about. Why do you think no one's heard of it? Why do you think it's not a big? I don't drama? think there's anything anything dark or conspiratorial. I just think it's a damn obscure movie, and I was tremendously chuffed that they did this on demand DVD, then Blu-ray of it, so, so other people. But it's what you were saying. It's so witty. It's so good that it's gradually nosing, nuzzling its way out of obscurity. You mentioned the witty dialogue. I, I want, like, right at the beginning when they park this girl at Mark's apartment, it has to be said that he's not keen on having her there. What the cop who doesn't know Mark so well turns and very sternly says, Remember, boys, she's underage. If you touch her, that's it. Something like that. Like you, that's all she wrote. You know, you're 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 in trouble. So they clearly lay down the law about that. Later on, and those guys are on the Vice Squad. I wonder if you can guess what my favourite line of dialogue in this entire film is. Is it related to that scene? Because if I can, if I if not, then take a shot at it. Um, I don't actually know because I haven't written anything down for that scene. Well, it's actually after that scene. You see that part of the what makes this less creepy is that Dick Powell, uh, Mark Christopher, is engaged to be married to this woman, and she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in your life. She's just stunning. Uh, Her name is... We're looking up Isabella, sorry. Yeah. Anne Francis. And and isn't she the most 
Oh, she's a blonde goddess. Is she, she not? She looks amazing at the beginning. There is a, there is a fantastic line later on, which is such a subtle line yeah. that they throw it away, um, which is where Debbie Reynolds comes in. And it's about golf? <laughs> no, she, she's just spoken to her on the... Or she's just met her for the first time. Um, and I'm trying to work out what I've written here, but it's something along the lines of... Um, is that Isabella? She sure doesn't look like she sounds. She's beautiful. <laughs> Isabella is like this absolute knockout, like this blonde, bomb, like really classy blonde bombshell. And she has, I think, the greatest line in the film because she discovers that this teenager is staying at Mark's apartment and she assumes the worst. And she goes, she discovers that the Vice Squad guys are the reason this is happening. And she comes over to well basically to take all her things from Mark's apartment and uh, she discovers these guys are with the vice squad and she says the vice squad always my favorite squad I just think it's <laughs> one of the best lines I've ever heard I just love that line it's just so witty she's really good in this um, she's a bit like a film noir heroine actually she's got that kind of thing going on I mean we have to accept that this is a farce yeah but so... she, she, she's the sexiest thing and like there's a bit where um, what happens is that gradually Susan, Debbie Reynolds, falls in love with Mark and is trying to win. He doesn't want to know because he's just being the knight in shining armour, the saviour complex. She's trying to win him over. So she's practising golf because she thinks this will make it more attractive. Yes. And uh, because uh, Isabella plays golf so, and she's trying to outclass Isabella. And Isabella is a patrician, uh, an aristocrat of, of the... Uh, of Los Angeles society, whereas uh, um, Susan's basically a valley girl, right? Yeah. A girl from working class girl. So she's trying to learn golf, and Virgil very dryly says, it wasn't, her, her golf score wasn't the reason you went out with her, right? And there's a bit later, a very cheeky bit later on where she's thinking of dyeing her hair, and it's actually Mark himself who says, oh, uh, but Isabella's hair is not dyed, she's a natural blonde. And there's this pause, and he says, she's a very good friend. There's yes. a pause, she says, she told me so. <laughs> but I just, I think it's very cheeky and naughty. I like that. Isabella has a fantastic line as well on the phone where um, she's talking to Debbie Reynolds. This is after she and Mark have got married. Yeah. And she introduces herself. This is your husband's fiance. <laughs> yeah. Because what happens is, and this is all in the play, which is, it's, it's sort of a cunningly constructed play because Mark Christopher has to marry Susan to keep her out of jail. Basically. Which his lawyer is against, farm. and I've actually oh. again written down some dialogue there, which he says, um, "You can't marry her, Mark. I have a daughter that age." And he says, "Well, then I get a, a lawyer with a with an older daughter." Yeah, the lawyer <laughs> is absolutely brilliant, and that leads to an incredible scene. Well, just another great line where they're talking about. Does uh, it along the lines of? Any judge that starts handing out 17-year-old chicks to 35-year-old bachelors is going to be president like, next year. <laughs> and it's just full of great stuff like that. That's so, what I wrote, 35 my ass. <laughs> so, so, yeah, exactly. So he's, he's married her to protect her uh, from going to prison, and then he kind of abandons her. He doesn't consummate the marriage, and he goes up into the mountains to a cabin in the snow to write his masterpiece with his secretary. But So that's basically the setup. I would rather not say too much about what happens. I like people to discover this film I, I would just want you to if you because I'm I love this movie I'm nuts about it I wonder if you could just make the case that other people should all because you you saw it and you think it's worth seeing absolutely yeah I think it's definitely worth watching it's funny it's very funny there's some really good lines in this Thank and it's you. worth it for those alone um, it what it needed I think it needed is just one more day with them together 
Because there's a fantastic scene over breakfast where they have a nice bit of character stuff going on. Oh, and she's explaining... I thought that was when you said the breakfast scene. I thought it was the scene you didn't like. No, this is when they're eating the breakfast yeah, after yeah. and they're out on the patio. Gotcha. And she's explaining her life and he's finally getting an idea of what's been going on in her world. Yeah. I think it just needed a day of them together to enjoy that sort of company and get yeah. to know each other to sell the relationship better. Yeah, but so to deepen the performances and the acting. Yeah, I just Frank Ashland is not, not the director for that. He's much more no, the director for, for Furious Slapstick. Brilliantly achieved. And I suppose that's not the point of this. This is meant to be a comedy. It's not no, meant to be a what deep I love character piece. about what you just said is that you're obviously fond of the characters and you felt if they'd been brought to life and made more three-dimensional, you would have cared more deeply. Yeah, because there's some nice subtleties there. It's um, lovely. Susan has a, a, a eating obsession of strawberries to mixed pickles. Yeah. Now, have you ever tried it? No, but the, the, that gag, which people may not understand now, is part of a, a tradition of gags of that period that, that when women became pregnant, they would eat strange stuff. Obviously. I've actually done some research on this, though. Have you ever looked for recipes with strawberries and mixed pickles? No. There's loads. <laughs> so it's, it's a common thing, because I know people have strawberries with balsamic vinegar, yeah. so it kind of makes oh, sense. Oh, that's exactly what it's like. That's yeah. exactly what it's like. And I'm now quite... I'm almost interested enough to try this. Maybe yeah. we should do it next Yeah, time. let's do that. to celebrate. Let's, we'll both watch this movie again and try that. That's fascinating. You always come up with stuff which I don't totally don't expect you to come up with, and that that was one of them. And one other thing that we've skipped over here is Maddie yeah. Norman, uh, who plays the housekeeper. Yeah, she has I, a thankless it was task. killing me trying to work out what I knew her from, but it's whatever happened to Baby Jane. Oh, you're kidding. She's Elvira. Oh, and brilliant. It's driving me well, mad. I'm so glad that she had a, a more vivid performance because she has a thankless kind of... It's a thankless role, but it's a really sparky role. She lights up in every scene. She She's, she's very good. She's so happy throughout she, the film. She's underused. She's clearly very good and she has nothing to do. That, that's why I felt a bit bad for her. But everybody else has got stuff to do. Like the cops are brilliant. Isabella's brilliant. Uh, I know you don't like Virgil, but the chick in the hallway who fancies Mark. The chick in the hallway is amazing. She's great. I, I, I wanted more of her in the film, yeah, but, but again, I love that. This is the, the the only bit of Virgil action I liked was the very end. Yeah. Where he's just torn between it's a, following her oh, down the hall. It's classic corridor. sexual frustration. <laughs> yeah. Throughout the film, there's this gorgeous brunette um, who's very sexy and she lives in the same building as Mark and she fancies Mark, but she doesn't fancy Virgil. And Mark, isn't interested. She's very nice to her. He's not interested. Virgil's desperate to have the time of day with her, and she completely ices him, gives him the cold shoulder until at the end, because Virgil's story arc is that he joins the navy again, and he's dresses in uniform, his full uniform to go and you know sign up again, uh, to when he's heading for the naval base, and she sees him. She falls for him because he's in this. You know, it's an officer and a general, and she sees him in his uniform and she whistles at him, doesn't yes. she? And he's about to go, like, she's obviously like, you know, follow me back to my apartment. He's about to follow her. He checks his watch, he just doesn't have time before he has to <laughs> turn up for his enlistment. And it's, but that, that's a classic kind of sexual frustration, sex farce kind of thing. But what I wanted to say is, she, she's this kind of wiggly, curvy brunette. The way she's shot and the way she is presented in the film, again, you could imagine that in a cartoon, like with with being wolf whistled by a literal wolf in one of these cartoons yeah absolutely um, she's got a bit of the Julie Newmars about her I thought yeah well it, the movie is a lost gem I absolutely love it and it's full I'm so glad you responded to the witty dialogue because that's what I live for you know yeah. I, I'm, I'm a writer and I revere other writers and this, this guy Alex Gottlieb I'm giving him most of the credit because he did he co-wrote the play and he wrote the screenplay 
but with Steve Fisher, they come up with some of the best lines. You know, my, the Vice Squad, always my favourite squad. And other lines of that statue. I love this movie. I think it's a brilliant comedy. And I'm so glad that you didn't pour cold water on it. Thank no, you. No, I enjoyed it. This has been a podcast by my friend Matt West and myself, Andrew Cartmel. But very importantly, the music, the fabulous music you heard at the beginning and that you're listening to now is by Joe Kramer. Thank you very much, Joe. Hold my cheese sandwich.